You're listening to a podcast from the Swedish House of Finance, Sweden's National Research Center for Financial Economics. This podcast is for everyone with a curiosity for finance and an interest in academic research. To learn more about the Swedish House of Finance, visit houseoffinance.se. everyone, this is Sarah Ardison from the Swedish House of Finance and I'm about to kick off our very first podcast. Today I have two distinguished guests with me in the studio, Professor Per Strömberg at the Stockholm School of Economics and Professor David Robinson at Duke University. A warm welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Today we're going to talk about private equity and more specifically a trend that we see happening now in the private equity space. For the last few years, there has been a dramatic inflow of capital into illiquid asset markets, such as private equity. One driver of this inflow, historically, is that the return has been higher relative to more liquid asset classes. And at the same time, investors have become increasingly concerned about the high fee of investing in private equity funds. And this has led to an increase in alternative PE fund structures. And as new alternative investment models become more common, new questions are being raised such as how are the manager's incentives affected and how are the profit shares calculated and so on. So, Per and David, would you start by explaining to the listeners about this change towards alternative PE fund structures and why this trend is happening now? Well, there's a couple of trends taking place in the market that I think um, are, are worth talking about. Uh, one um, Limited partners, the investors who provide capital to private equity <laughs> funds, are becoming increasingly concerned about the level of management fees that they face. So there's pressure to push down the management fees. But then, but 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 that just means that general partners go and try to collect fees from other pockets. So sometimes they charge fees to the portfolio companies that they own, and that's a way of kind of getting back some of the revenues that they would have lost out of management fees. So this is something that we're just really beginning to understand, and, and I think the jury's still very much out on whether this is on the whole good or bad for limited partners, um, but, you know. Yeah. I think a lot of LPs just, have, you know, there's an increasing awareness of how big these fees actually are as a percentage of assets under management, because they have this... The PE model, um, which sounds easy, you know, but you have a fixed management fee, let's say one and a half, two percent, then you have this carried interest, profit share, twenty percent, plus, as David mentioned, uh, especially in the U.S. Uh, and the U.K., a lot of sort of these portfolio company fees that are charged and so on. So it's been kind of hard to know how much you're actually really paying in fees. Yeah. Um, and now, also, too, because yeah, exactly. sometimes the fees get rebated back to the limited partners. Exactly. So depending on where the fund is, how what yeah. its returns have been, you kind of don't know necessarily where you stand. And the rebates sometimes are sort of gamed and so on. Yeah. And, but um, the so I think that um, estimates come out, and people are realizing this, probably like 5 6 7% per year. Now, if you look at fund management, that's huge, okay? Yeah, enormous. Um, and outperforming... You know, the market, let's say, by 5-6% per year is almost unheard of, but that's actually what private equity funds will have to do. So I think that uh, one of the big trends has been now for a while is that a lot of LPs, if you're big, you're kind of saying, okay, why don't I do this thing myself? Why do I invest in KKR yeah. uh, when I can do this myself? I don't I've have to be as good. I, I could be, yeah. be 3% worse per year and still make 3% more per yeah. year compared to if I invest in the fund. That's right. Yeah. 
So, um, so I think that's sort of a, a trend. It's still, uh, I think the verdict is still out of, because we don't think that, let's say, if some pension fund invests directly in some private equity assets, we know that PE funds are really good at, at kind of bringing value up in these companies to make up for the high fees they charge. So we don't know how much worse these LPs that we call and these, these institutional investors will actually be. But Maybe co- if but they're 8% worse, yeah. then it's not worth it. Right? Yeah, but co- I mean, so it's one thing to be a direct investor and, and you know, sourcing your own investment yeah. deals. But a lot of times these guys are just co-investors. Exactly. They're jumping into a sidecar vehicle that doesn't have any fees or carried interest exactly. associated with it. And then... then, then they're a limited partner in the fund. They're also in the sidecar, and their sort of yeah. blended return yeah. looks more attractive than what they would get. And it's a little weird, right? Because if then, let's say, all the LPs just did half of their money in uh, co-investment together with the fund and half of it through the fund, why do it through co Why don't you just do everything through a fund with half the fees? Right, exactly. Right? Exactly. Just a fund that's twice as large, exactly. half the fees. Exactly. And everything's yeah. fine. So I guess it's sort of. So I guess uh, maybe it's yeah. one way to give some people a better deal. Than exactly, others, it's right? price discrimination. Yeah, and, I think that's right. And the little guy loses, as, al- <laughs> as always, as always. Yeah. Okay, so what would be the biggest pros with these new structures? Well, so so one pro is that by having this uh, co-investment, it allows you to have to do a much larger deal than you would otherwise be able to do. So imagine, so a, a lot of limited partner agreements will have provisions in them that limit the size of any one deal relative to the total size of the fund. So let's say you have a billion dollar fund, you could have maybe only do a hundred million dollars in, in one deal, something let's say. Well, having a co-investment vehicle allows you to kind of sidestep that. And if you think that what's happening is that the, the like the big returns are associated with the, like the mega transactions, the super large transactions, then it's actually better for everybody if you have these co-investment vehicles because it allows the fund to get into a much larger deal than it would otherwise be able to get into, which is good for yeah. even the little yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. This is where the little guys actually That's don't true. lose. Yeah, yeah. So what would be the limitations? One of the limits with um, with a co-investment is that now everyone wants them. Yeah. Okay? So then the amount of money you, you can invest then as an LP in this co-investment is going down because everyone is just everyone getting their get, little get their uh, piece in. So then I, I guess what you're seeing that some LPs are doing, the bigger ones, they're trying to come earlier. So rather than the traditional co-investment that you're offered after a deal is done, you know, so the, the private equity fund will syndicate with its investors, then you get, get this tiny little ticket. So what a lot of other guys start to do is actually be in there sourcing and yeah. doing the deal together with a PE fund um, before the deal is done. And you don't know whether you're going to win the auction or whatever. But if you do, then you get a bigger chunk. Um, but that will also obviously put much more... But you have to have more, bigger... Uh, exactly. Yeah, Both you, you a bigger organization and probably more skill. More skill uh, in order to, to, to participate that way. So you've been discussing this in the current market environment. What effects would we typically see during a recession? Well, I think what you're going to see, I mean, so one, one thing that's clear is you're going to see a, a dramatic slowdown in, in exits, right? And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're a limited partner, one of the things that's kind of attractive about private equity is that, um, you know, general partner does not have an incentive to liquidate assets in down markets. So they'll just kind of hold stuff. And, 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 and that can be, if you can, if you can afford the, if you can afford to be patient and kind of ride it out, that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
or having deep pockets. If you're a deep you pocket LP down. in the recession, you can double down and buy up private equity assets from other investors who are more through panicking the secondary and market. Sell in the secondary market. Yeah, but um, uh, I guess uh, a lot uh, of times yeah. if the market's going down, yeah. uh, fun. Um, Limited partners, pensions that kind of that kind of manage money according to these simple strategies, where they're going to have you know thirty percent in domestic private equity and thirty percent in domestic public equity. They can get pinched when in down markets because they have these rebalancing yeah. constraints that yeah. they have to meet. The so-called denominator. Yeah, effect. the denominator exactly. So that can put that that pushes them to try to liquidate private equity investments, which can make then you. Uh, uh, make the returns to buying them in the secondary market very. I mean, attractive. the ironic thing is that in these in the past recessions, private equity, I mean, hasn't done great in recessions. Neither has most other assets, um, but they've done somewhat better than, let's say, public equity. And if you have this mandate where you can only have a certain percentage in private equity, and your public equity goes down more, so private equity does relatively well. Well, that's the point where you have to sell it because then you. You blow your you, constraints. You, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is kind of ironic. Yeah. I mean, you sort of like to do the opposite yeah, exactly. at that point. Exactly. Um, but the, the other uh, trend you were talking about, which I kind of wonder, I mean, it's, it's interesting to know generally these trends, whether it's trends or whether it's cyclical stuff, right? But um, the other thing uh, has to do with um, experimenting with new uh, fund structures. Fund structures, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so I think you're starting to see yeah. longer-lived exactly. funds. Exactly. There are some funds that have a 15-year exactly. life instead of a 10-year exactly. life, or even evergreen or evergreen yeah. fund. Yeah, these permanent capital acquisition yeah. vehicles, yeah. PCAPs, whatever yeah. you call them, yeah. where you have just an, uh, um, um, you know, potentially yeah. infinite. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what I think is unclear, and what I'm trying to wrap my head around. Uh, is to what extent is this actually kind of a trend, an improvement over what's been before, or whether it's sort of a cyclical phenomenon driven by the fact that everyone just has so much money to invest, uh, and GPs hate to do fundraising, and LPs hate to get money back because then they have to find something else to invest in, and everyone is just like in this super liquid period. Just, yeah, long funds, evergreen, sounds great. Um, but when the cycle turns and liquidity becomes scarce, you know, maybe it's not so great to have it in these vehicles. Anymore. And if you think about it, the whole 10-year fund life is this compromise between giving people a long enough runway to make uh, attractive investments and turn around the investments yeah. and then also having some governance over them because yeah, exactly. you can't, you, you know, it's it's you, it's not like owning a mutual exactly. fund where you can just kind of wake up on a Tuesday morning and sell exactly. if you don't like what they're exactly. doing. you got to get, you know, you know this 10-year life yeah, yeah. is what disciplines people. Exactly, because you yeah, really have no then, say in what they're no, doing. Yeah, I mean, uh, you cede uh, those rights over to the GP. Yeah, yeah. So what that then means then is that some of these experimental fund structures really are probably just a function of the fact that we've been in this extremely long bull market, yeah, yeah, exactly. where it's been very easy yeah. to make money, and so that sort of takes exactly. the that sort of takes the the, the the break off one of those forces and kind of lets exactly. the other force. I remember, I mean, we're old enough to have been uh, around in the late '90s, right? Mm -hmm. When I was a young faculty member, you were a PhD student at Chicago. Um, and, uh, you know, all these uh, new int hot internet uh, uh, sort of VC investors popped up that were, you know, evergreen, publicly traded. There was Internet Capital Group and yeah. whatnot, um, who also had this sort of long-term evergreen thing, new way of doing things. And they all failed miserably when the tech market crashed. They didn't have any money. They, you know, they couldn't get out of their investments. And so it's a big risk even now? Yeah, I think uh, they're, you know, the the the... the 
what do you call the seeds of the next recessions are sown in the boom, right? Yeah, absolutely. So who knows what part of this is sort of sensible uh, things, sensible uh, reforms uh, or changes, and and what part is just sort of uh, you know over optimism or we don't haven't thought things through and we'll see in the next recession if it works or not. I mean, I think that's interesting. There's another aspect to this <clears throat> that's worth talking about, which especially in the U.S., uh, you know, we used to have these defined benefit pension plans. Where and and that created these large pools of money that were that were natural investors into private equity, and as our as our pension system, as our you know, retirement saving system writ large has 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 transitioned from defined benefit to defined contribution, there's been this pressure to try to find new new ways of accessing uh, investors, mm. and so you know some of the biggest private equity companies mm. have now, uh, it's now possible to essentially buy buy shares in the general partner as a retail as a investor. retail investor yeah. uh you know yeah. there's seven or eight of the big funds do this and really yeah. part of what's driving that is just the fact that they know that ultimately they have to be able to reach those retail right. investors one way or another right. and they're kind of experimenting with different exactly. structures to allow that to be able to raise money in to public be able to raise money in public be, markets yeah. so that actually means that if I'm understanding this correctly, that this trend that we see or these two trends that we've been talking about, they are not only relevant for institutional investors, they will affect private investors as well. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> especially if the larger um, players like the big uh, sovereign wealth funds and the big uh, you know, public pension funds start doing more things in-house, then I guess the traditional... Sort of private equity funds and traditional GPs will increasingly have to look have to elsewhere, elsewhere, especially if you're smaller. Or find sort of niche strategies that yeah, are exactly. harder for these big institutional shops to, yeah, to replicate. Yeah, yeah. But that does seem to be the way it's happening. When yeah. you, instead of sort of a uniformly distributed uh, you know, investment capital yeah, distribution, yeah, now exactly. it's sort of getting clustered in these huge sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then... Retail investment. Yeah, exactly. Family offices, I guess, also is guess. sort of an increasingly yeah. interesting uh, uh, LP class. <clears throat> I mean, I think they've been around, you know, in the U.S. for way longer. But you see a lot of, uh, you know, wealthy people in our region, Europe and the Nordics, you know, becoming more professional in uh, how they, uh, you know, set up their and, and their, their own office. family offices yeah. or and team up with a bunch of other rich uh, families to create family office and then become an LP in funds and do all sorts of. And family offices bring something interesting to the table, which is that they often will stress some kind of social, some aspect of social responsibility in the right. investment. There'll be something that's important for that right. family, right. be it the right. environment right. or social right. issues, and you know, sometimes that can drive their capital right. to be invested differently mm -hmm. than it might otherwise. Which mm -hmm. can kind of have an yeah. impact on the way yeah. capital gets allocated yeah. in the market. Yeah. But I mean, so we talked about you know these sort of new fund structures. I mean, some skepticism you could have, or that it's sort of a boom phenomenon. But uh, on the other hand, I think, uh, and David has done interesting research in this, and I've also looked at this. I mean, there are some problems with the traditional model, not just fees, as we mentioned before, but in the way that these sort of time-limited funds, uh, you know, make you invest in certain ways that might not be in the ultimate interest of, of your limited partners or investors. So, uh, I mean, so one example is the fact that uh, you know, since you have these 10-year funds and maybe every five year you need to raise a new fund, 
and there's a, you know if people are going to give you more money you need to show more, some success yeah. so there's sort a tendency to tell sell some of your really good good companies or some of your winners around the time of fundraising and you can see that very clearly exactly. in the data well it, you might actually uh, have benefited more you're going to continue to get some alpha out of these investments if you kept them for another 3 4 years yeah, I mean, these limited partner agreements uh, have they, they balance a lot of competing interests. So, for example, you know, this 2% management fee that we talk about so much in this sector, that's generally thought of as 2% of committed capital. Well, committed capital is one thing at the very beginning of a fund where the fund is actively pursuing new investment opportunities and stuff. But let's say you get to out by a year six or seven or something like that, then the assets under management could be substantially yeah, lower exactly. than the committed capital. That makes 2% seem like a gigantic yeah. amount of money because it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's relative to this yeah. small amount of assets under management. So contracts balance that out by shifting the way that the management fee is calculated to make it be a function of assets under management instead of committed capital after a certain point in time, yeah. commonly. Exactly. Which then, which then yeah. creates this incentive exactly. problem, which you don't want to let go of something because if you let go of it, then you can't collect exactly. fees on it. I think the two things you see uh, uh, on, on around that investment period, apart from the early exits, you know, which have to do with kind of showing good fundraising performance. The other thing you see is that if you haven't invested your money and you're reaching the end of the investment period, if you don't call on that uh, commitment, then you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. So, so some, of the, some of the worst shopping. investments, uh, you know, we see um, particularly the, the some secondary, uh, it's been shown for secondary buyouts, that there's a particular segment of the secondary buyouts that seem to underperform, which is the ones that are undertaken by funds at the end of the investment period with a lot of uninvested capital. So there is sort of, let's just buy something because otherwise, yeah. uh, I'm, you know, we're going to shrink if we don't go spend money. Exactly. So how do they solve that incentive problems in an evergreen fund? So, 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 part, so the bottom line is that reputation becomes an incredibly important force in the market, right? And you're not able to raise an evergreen fund unless you're one of the funds out there in the market who's got a very strong reputation. And the reputation associated with being able to raise the next fund is precisely what disciplines you to not, yeah, exactly. you know, go on a crazy yeah. shopping spree yeah. in yeah. year four. Eventually, you will pay fund. for it. Because uh, it'll catch yeah. up with you, yeah. yeah. The, but the other, um, just lengthening the fund life in itself, um, has the benefit, you know, so one of the problems, why might you end up with a lot of uninvested capital, you know, at the end of the investment period? Well, because, you know, when you raise the fund and something happened in the market, there were no interesting investment opportunities, and you only have, let's say, five years to find these investments, and you don't find them year one, two, three, and then you're starting to panic. If you have a longer fund, you might be able to sit out the whole cycle, and you can be pretty sure at some point during this period you will find something. I'm somewhat skeptical of this argument, though, because I feel like there's nothing that prevents people from renegotiating. Right. And if you have a good reputation and you can communicate to your limited partners that, look, we, we, you know, there's good opportunities out there. We can't, uh, you know, we've got all this uninvested capital. Give yeah. us some more time. This is exactly what TPG did and, you know, sort yeah. of like five years after the financial crisis. Yeah, but, but, but you know, I mean, we want to put our theory hat on a bit. Uh, it, there are reasons to believe that it's easier to negotiate these things ex ante when there's no, when you haven't invested in anything yet. And there's no asymmetric information, as we say, okay, compared to renegotiating these things, these things exposed when you 
have this sort of two competing hypothesis. No, either the guy is right and uh, I should give him a break or give her a break or the person is, you know, full of crap <laughs> and is just bad and that's the, why they're trying to negotiate. So there is sort of an advantage of setting these things uh, exam up example. Maybe. And then the whole top, idea yeah. of an evergreen fund, if you think about it, what is the difference between an evergreen fund and a successful fund that raises a first fund and then raises a second right. fund towards the end of the first fund's right. investment period and raises a third fund towards the end right. of the second? That is an evergreen fund yeah. that just has this rollover mechanism yeah. in it. Except that uh, you know, typically the fund agreements, for good reasons, restrict your ability to transfer an investment from one fund to the second one. Uh, understood. Understood. So, because the other the other uh, um, thing that you know potentially have argument for longer fund lives is also about exits, right? So you you're going to be forced to exit year ten, regardless of uh, you know whether the exit markets are favorable or not. And if you have the ability to hold on for longer, then you can time your exits better. And there's no question that part of this longer fund life story has got to do with the fact that you know sovereign wealth funds. Yeah can be much more patient than, yeah. than you know, yeah, exactly. a, a university endowment yeah. Yeah. or something like that. I mean, the kind of negotiation, renegotiation you're talking about is kind of happening to some extent, right? So we see these uh, continuation funds or yeah, annex right. funds right. or where it's basically uh, um, almost like a co-investment deal which is done by your most with your most patient LPs that are happy to continue to own some company for a little bit longer. And that's like a way to... So some of the LPs who want to exit, they can exit and... A select group of LPs can continue to invest in, in the company for uh, for a bit longer. So I think you've seen more of that stuff going on, which is kind of adopting the existing fund model rather than just redoing everything completely. Yeah, that's right. So here comes the ten million dollar question for you guys. That's not a lot of money in private no, equity. No, not in private equity. Maybe ten uh -huh. billion. Okay, ten billion dollars then. So if you would start your own uh, P fund, which model would you prefer? You know, it's, I don't think it's up to me. If I raising a first-time fund is notoriously difficult. difficult. When you raise you your first fund, you just take the. You deal take what you the get. market yeah. gives you. I think if we were, you know, trying to start our own PE fund, we'd have to. We'd have to set our own schedule. We'd have to set a more careful schedule than we yeah, do now. Yeah, exactly. I think so too. And we um, have to do a list of the most stupid LPs we know. Yes. So thank you so much for the insight, guys. I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you for Thank having you. us. For our listeners who would like to continue with us, you can find more on this topic and a full seminar video at houseoffinance.se. And if you'd like to suggest your future topic or guests for us to invite to our show, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at houseoffinance.se. This is Sarah signing off. Looking forward to talking with you again.